Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. I'm your host, Alex Mozinski, and today I'm co-hosting with our producer and newly appointed chair, Ooh. Tristan Johnson. How are you today, Tristan? Not too bad, not too bad. Just doing the thing. Yeah, you're multitasking <laughs> today. Yeah, yeah, I might be a little bit distracted while I'm doing board stuff. Well, I'll... I'll carry us forward if you need so there you go anyway um today we're joined by guest kelly abrams kelly's a second year phd student in anthropology here at western university how are you today kelly i'm great thanks for having me thank you for coming so tell us a little bit about what you study so anthropology what is anthropology (laughs) (laughs) anthropology widely speaking i guess is the study of humanity um i'm a sociocultural anthropologist so i um deal with people who are in societies today. Uh, Specifically, I do my research here in southern Ontario amongst farmers, agricultural producers. Um, And what defines anthropology really is our fieldwork methods. So unlike other social scientists who um, often spend lots of time doing surveys or one-on-one interviews, uh, anthropologists actually spend significant time in what we call the field, which is spending time, um, you know, eating with the people that we are studying, uh, doing the same work that they do, um, kind of learning what it is. We call it participant observation. So actually participating in their daily lives so we kind of understand what it is that they're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. So so my first question with that would be, uh, how do you guys, like, keep the academic rigor with that? Because I can imagine, like... uh, I can imagine you could very easily fall in love with your subject, and like I, I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not wanting to be mean to the field. I just, I, I'm always curious about how you guys keep that distance. Uh, to be honest, there's a number of fieldwork stories where things like that have happened, where you know anthropologists have fallen in love with subjects, have stories about sexual encounters, all of these kinds of things are, are dangers um, in the ethics between you know kind of participant uh, and subject, researcher and subject. Um, researcher and researched I guess um, yeah these these things can happen and it's a risk so uh, you know you, you get involved and if you let yourself get involved too deeply these things can happen so I guess in order to maintain that kind of uh, rigor um, it's an ethical conundrum that some anthropologists face is um, getting over involved it's like the inoculation is be aware of it the whole time and yeah, be yeah. reflexive, what your position is, um, making sure that you're, um, I guess, able to maintain enough of a distance that you're still able to have um, some semblance of objectivity about what it is that you're taking part in. Excellent. Good answer. So how fully do you have to immerse yourself, I guess, into the agricultural world here in southern Ontario that you are studying? Well, for myself, um, I spent uh, a week in the summer uh, working on uh, an organic farm. Um, So that was, you know, 12 hour days taking part in in agricultural production, mopping out barns, um, you know, forking manure, uh, hand weeding. This was an organic um, farm. So so doing weeding, hoeing, eating meals with uh, the people that I was working with, Um, you know, these kinds of things. I I do a lot of... um, attending field days with farmers so um, farmers will have 
what they call kitchen table meetings or field meetings where a number of farmers will get together um, and talk about uh, what's going on uh, with them, what what varieties of, of things that they're planting and working with. And so I will go on these field site visits and, um, you know, listen to the farmers exchange that kind of information. Uh, yeah. Well, so you get right in there and live the lifestyle kind of for a while, eh? Yeah, I think um, that's what's unique about anthropology is uh, actually seeing people doing what they do. Um, I think you can get a little bit more that way. I, I've done one-on-one interviews as well. That is part of um, my method that lets me um, ask questions that I maybe can't do in the moment when I'm actually doing field work and when I'm doing quote-unquote field work (laughs) when I'm actually out in the field doing agricultural labor. Um, I don't really have any social interactions with other producers because agriculture is actually a very solitary activity. So, um, you know, I get insight, insight that I wouldn't get um, maybe just by asking questions. Um, And it gives me an insight into other questions I might ask, things I might not have thought of if I hadn't actually taken part in the labor myself. That's amazing. So, so. From the perspective of a, a guy who was born and raised in Toronto, um, what is it like? Just I mean, what is farm? This, <laughs> well, this is, you know, this is the group of, of people, I guess, in the culture that you're studying here, and it, it is a distinct culture of its own. I've never heard of a you know kitchen table meeting. So uh, aside from maybe like when I was in high school and my parents got mad at me about things and we needed to have a meeting, and that was our point of interest. But um, so what uh, what what is it like? Well, I have a new appreciation for where my food comes from. Um, farmers work incredibly hard. I, the very first day that I volunteered on that organic farm, um, my hosts were very, very gracious, kind people, and they were kind of showing me around and kind of babying me a little bit, I think, just, you know, treating me like an academic and, and kind of showing me around. And I insisted I'm supposed to be doing field work I'm supposed to be participating so I I kind of insisted that they put me to work and um, by the end of that day it was probably a 30 degree day plus humidity Um, you know and I was forking hay from the loft down to feed the cows and I was mucking out uh, a uh, chicken coop and the smell was atrocious and I was sweaty and I was exhausted and I cried in the car all the way home (laughs) I cried I said please universe don't make me go back I don't want to go back because I've never worked that hard in my life it's 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 really hard work um it's amazing how hard farmers work day in and day out to produce the food that we kind of take for granted every day wow so you are saying basically that you may have for a moment in time had some second thoughts about your <laughs> chosen research topic. <laughs> I love my topic, but I am an academic and I am way too soft for agricultural labor, that's for sure. <laughs> okay. Um, so what specifically are you looking at or finding among the agricultural community in southwestern Ontario here? So um, my main research interest is the intersection between agriculture and the environment. So um, agriculture has been implicated, actually, in causing a lot of issues uh, surrounding climate change. So um, what they call the meatification of diets. So increasingly, people are eating more and more meat around the world. um, And the industrial kind of livestock complex where they they have these... um, massive feedlots and they have to transform um, productive agricultural land um, not to feed people but to, to feed livestock um, 
the methane and all these things that cows produce um, is actually very damaging to the environment. On um, the issue of food miles, which is um, how far our food travels to our plate in many cases, um, you go into your local grocery store, most of the produce and stuff there doesn't come from local farmers. It comes from places around the world. And all of that travel, um, you know, imp- it has implications for CO2 emissions, um, not to mention pesticide use and um you know, loss of biodiversity because of large industrial monocultures based on genetically modified organisms and all of these things um, are implicated in environmental issues. Um, on the other side, farmers um, have to deal with the issues surrounding climate change. Um, this isn't just in developing nations, but here as well, farmers are increasingly have to, having to innovate and adapt um, as massive changes in weather and climate make it more difficult for them to, you know, predict moisture levels and all of these issues uh, for growing. So um, on the one side, we've got kind of an emphasis on technological fixes. So more industrial agriculture, technology, uh, GMOs, um, nanotechnology is actually looking to be the wave of the future where micro robots are delivering uh, specific amounts of, of certain nutrients and stuff to plants. And on the other side, you've got this vast um, practical local knowledge, what I kind of think of as citizen science. And there's been a lot of research done around the globe with indigenous groups, with peasant uh, farmers, and um, a lot of documentation that they have this kind of vast practical knowledge that we should be tapping into. Um, but I think farmers here in Ontario also have that type of knowledge. Um, a lot of the small-scale farmers, they have intimate interactions with the land, sometimes over generations, and this knowledge has been passed down. Um, and I think that, that we should be listen, listening to that because as we have to deal with more um, extreme weather conditions due to climate change, I think we're going to need more than one approach and we should be accessing more than one type of knowledge as we move forward. So do you predict that there will be some kind of a happy medium between, I guess, scientific technological discovery and the uh, sort of uh, local knowledge. What, what did you call it exactly? I call it citizen science. Citizen science. I, I really <laughs> like that. I like that a lot. And so I guess the industrial science will call it and citizen science, as, as you're calling it. And do you think that there will be a way that locally each population of farmers, like throughout the world, I guess, could benefit from, uh, I guess, mixing it in themselves with what they know and technology, I guess? Is that what you see in the future? That's what I hope uh, I hope for. Uh, the reality um, with the world food, food system is that increasingly our food system is um, being owned, managed, and controlled by large transnational corporations and the, the limitations of government to make policies that can affect real change um, is a real concern. So um, La Via Campesina is a peasant movement, a global peasant movement that's actually the largest social movement in the world. There is farmers here, uh, specifically the National Farmers Union, which is uh, one of three very large farmers unions that operate in our nation, are part of La Via Campesina. So it's, it's a social movement towards food sovereignty and kind of moving away from that um, model that allows these big uh, conglomerates, people like Monsanto that own the inputs that we need or have been using um, in conventional and industrial agriculture, as well as all the um, pesticides that are used and as well as these huge, huge 
uh, grocery conglomerates that decide what goes on our food shelf. So um, the you know, the science is one end of it, but there's a large, I guess, economic machine that, that's also limiting the ability of these smaller scale farmers to, to, I guess, affect change. So that's going to be a concern going forward as well. Uh, so can we get some cool examples of, like, case studies or interesting things you've learned uh, from the citizen scientists on the farm? Like, what what are, like, oh, what are examples of, like, what the, um, what the, mechanistic scientific farm people are missing out on well okay there's lot there's lots of things um first of all um organic organic producers know this and and it's not something that um you know conventional agriculture producers use but clover uh clover will uh return nitrogen to the soil so rather than paying money for you know nitrogen fertilizers um a lot of farmers will overwinter by planting clover on their on their fields and the clover will grow and that will return the nitrogen to the soil um it's a natural (laughs) thing it grows all around um let me think of something else that's really awesome why we don't grow quinoa in ontario (laughs) we don't grow quinoa even though it's a big big um financial you know that it's in every health food store. Everybody mm-hmm. wants quinoa now. Um, but there's a weed that grows. It's probably growing in your garden right now. It's called lamb's quarter, and it grows everywhere. And it's it's basically uh, another another species of quinoa. And so um, it would crossbreed all the time here. So it's not... And it, this is not the type of knowledge that I have, <laughs> or or that people are are thinking about um, that farmers have. Um, they kind of see interactions between different species in, in their landscapes um, as well, like um, maybe enhancing um, habitat for uh, wild turkeys because they eat Colorado potato beetles. These kinds of things that that uh, I don't know that the rest mm-hmm. of us just don't know. And then I don't think that the average technological scientist thinks of when they're looking at ways that one can help protect our environment by looking at other things that our environment that can do the same job that we're using technological fixes for. And have you experienced, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what farmers have noticed through observation in the way of our, how our climate is changing. I'd be interested in knowing if um, if they've noticed any major uh, changes to the way they do their business? Well, you know, agricultural producers are an interesting bunch when it comes to climate change. They're very diverse. We've, I've got spoken to agricultural producers who are very concerned about climate change and then others who don't necessarily believe in climate science. Um, I think for agricultural producers, and this is um, something really to think about when we're thinking about tapping into the unique uh, knowledge that they have, is agriculture by nature is... And adapt. You have to adapt every year. You have to adapt. That's that's been what farmers have had to do for millennia. Um, so I th- I think where farmers are are activists in terms of advocating for things like biodiversity and stuff taps into um, that issue of of being able to adapt and change. Because if you rely on, I know for some of the agricultural producers I've talked to who are concerned about GMOs. They're concerned about the lack of biodiversity because a lack of biodiversity is a lack of adaptive capacity. So
So mm. y- you find a pest and that pest is resistant to the pesticide. It has the potential to wipe out the entire crop. But if you've got diversity um, in the types of of production that is going on. You've got diverse crops, you've got diverse land races um, or strains of of a different crop, then you have a little bit of protection um, going forward. So, uh, you know, when it comes to to climate change, I guess farmers are kind of mixed that way because they they deal with with climate variability always. Mm -hmm. And uh, like uh, on the other thing with like diversity, also like uh, I'm interested in not only like the diversity of crops, but also... I'm trying to think. It was like the, the people who grow, they grow squash and corn and beans together. and The three sisters. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and by growing them together, they help each other out in certain ways, right? Right. They're, they're basically like commensals. They, they take different things and give different things back to oil, so they mm-hmm. grow really well together. That actually comes from the indigenous people of this area grew those three together and called them the three sisters. Um, and they got it. They, they knew that those things, um, you know, each took different nutrients from the soil um, and so they would grow really well together they facilitate one another and and those kinds of that kind of knowledge is the kind of knowledge that I think that we need to be thinking about more um, as we're trying to adapt to climate change and feed the growing world population so mm-hmm. so the citizen science um, and, and what one farmer might know that may not be common knowledge to somebody on the other side of the province, on the other side of the country. Um, to what extent is that information? And and like I would imagine anyway that what one person knows about their own plot of land might be incredibly valuable to them, but it may be less valuable to somebody out in New Brunswick. But then there might be other tidbits of information, such as the three sisters, that are probably universal. So to what extent is exchanging this information going to really um, be valuable at the the large-scale population level? And to what extent is it more of a, you know, tell-your-neighbor-only kind of valuability? I'm glad you asked that, actually, because that's really what my research is focused on now, um, is I'm really interested because back in the past, that's that's how farmers would exchange knowledge within their own community, neighbor to neighbor, these kind of things. But I'm seeing knowledge exchange in my research um, across international boundaries. Uh, we've got um, farmer interns traveling from Europe to come and learn about agriculture here. So um, that's something actually I'm exploring right now. So I don't know how well I can really answer your question um, because I haven't explored that fully yet but this is what's interesting to me is these new networks networks that um transcend not just you know provincial boundaries or even local boundaries but international boundaries um and how farmers are are sharing um you know different modes of experimentation um different ways that they're experimenting different things that they're trying um and how it's, it's kind of a different form of knowledge than the type of knowledge they might have learned um, in an agricultural college or those kinds of things. And so this practical knowledge, I, I don't know um, yet from my experience how well that transfers from place to place. And the reality is, too, that, that knowledge itself isn't a static thing. So how is, that, how is the knowledge that they're sharing changing? Um, how are they taking what they learn and adapting it and using it with what they already know? And how is that changing agricultural practice right here in southern Ontario? 
So one thing that I've actually seen is one of my lab mates has a farm of her own. Um, I guess it's more of a hobby farm than uh, than a factory style farm. I guess I don't know what what kind of, what would you call it a proprietary farm. Um, but she she raises chickens and she's you know on her lunch break and everything she's always on I think it's called poultryfarming.net and it's like a, a chicken forum online where you can you can post questions to other chicken enthusiasts what kind of breeds are you crossing and what do you get when you cross these two breeds what kind of temperament are you going to get um, is this becoming a much more popular trend among I guess agricultural communities to to sort of mass um, share information through the internet because that's something that you know you could you used to not be able to do around a kitchen table but now the kitchen table has become a lot bigger so that's exactly it and that's exactly what I'm so fascinated with and how these very diverse groups of farmers and like you mentioned very diverse landscapes and everything are sharing on these types of null there's forms like that um, an immense number of forms like that. Um, there's also farming conferences where farmers get together and uh, have a conference very similar to our academic conference where they have, um, you know, different farmers who are experienced um, having, having, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like sessions where other farmers can come and learn about that particular um, type of production, what it is they're doing, how they're experimenting, um, you know, what they're doing to, you know, deal with irrigation on their on the land, and they're sharing these things in ways that probably weren't seen previously, and so um, I'm, I'm really interested in that, and how that, that type of sharing has the potential to, I guess, provide an alternative to the, that giant industrial monoculture agriculture that we're seeing um, kind of take over especially in Canada it's kind of gotten to the point for a lot of smaller scale uh, farmers in Canada um, there's this kind of pressure to get big or get out um, and so I'm kind of looking at at how you know this kind of knowledge has the potential to provide an alternative to that type of agriculture what so I find really interesting about that is these farmers are sharing this information when that really goes against the the capitalist ethic where if you find an innovation, lock it under key because then you can get slightly farther ahead in like the kind of competitive aspect. So it's interesting that farmers are kind of doing this like a subversion of what the technological based farming equipment is is a kind of a model of like capitalist imperial monoculture, like industrialized things imposing on this really communal sharing community um i have a i i don't know about that so are we you are we making it out to be some kind of a utopia here because i'm sure that you know one farmer down the road will have a secret and you know it's a secret recipe or a secret thing that they do and they don't want to share that with other people so just because there's forums i mean there's science forums there's private sector industry research symposia that go on it doesn't mean that it's all happy daisies and butterflies and all the farmers are just you know slapping each other on the back and telling each other all their tips and tricks like they want their crops to be sold and it it is a business and i i would say that even at the local level there must be something that goes on and how about I'll, I'll address both so <laughs> it's interesting that you said it's a business because i've seen i've seen kind of bo- both sides of it um i think you know farming's not it's not really a career like we would 
you know, think of it. It's a lifestyle choice. It's mm-hmm. not something that I, I, people um, I think of in terms of a career or business. For, lo- for many, you know, their land has been in their family for generations. And so it, it, it kind of, that, that I don't know. Uh, but but you're right, it's not a utopia either. And farmers are a very diverse group. Um, so for some, there is a very real sense of community, um, of sharing, of trying to help one another. And then, um, but they do, they have to make a living. They, they have to feed their families. They have to, um, so you're right, they have to have markets to sell their stuff. Um, so these are all very real, real issues. It's important not to, I guess... Think of, of farmers as, as a cohesive group. Even even you know whether it's an organic farmer or a conventional farmer, they're they're not a cohesive group by by any means. They're just as diverse as, as anybody else with different motivations and um, you know passions and things driving their behavior. So 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 then um, you did some studies on a bunch of farms. I'd be interested in knowing how the organic farms and then the I don't know what you call them. Inorganic farms. Conventional conventional farms. How do they talk to each other? Um, You know, neighbor to neighbor, I think that um, farmers generally get along um, very well. Um, I think when it comes to politics, there can be some some, um, tensions there. Um, There's there's tensions even within organic or conventional groups based on uh, people who believe we should be marketing within Canada and those who want to access export markets. Um, So it's it's kind of a complicated uh, kind of tension. I'll admit that when I went into um, you know my project, I kind of had this maybe a idealistic notion that organic or agroecological farmers had a different view of the environment than conventional farmers um, because conventional farmers use pesticides and, and, you know, all of these things. Um, But the reality through my research has been is it's not not quite so black and white as that. And um, there's many conventional farmers who are extremely concerned about the environment, about things that they see happening on their farms, um, that are concerned about their family's health and, um, you know, the the health of themselves. Um, but have made choices for economic reasons or personal reasons. And I've seen organic growers that are very concerned about markets and are very concerned about um, filling a niche. Um, organic is, is value-added, which means that there's a premium paid for organic produce, and, and that's more than environmental motivations. does motivate some producers. So um, I guess it's important to, to realize how diverse farmers are as a group and... Um, Things might not be so uh, simplistic as they might seem sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I guess my last question will be, um, at the political, I guess, an international politics sort of legislation level, um, do you think that your research, um, when looking at this citizen science and how it's shared, will ultimately have an impact on international regulations of agricultural uh, sharing and and methods i'm not now i guess so naive to think that my my research specifically um will have any type of major impact but there's a growing body of work um focused on the issues of surrounding food sovereignty um and the potential for smaller scale farmers to to feed our world in a way that's um economically viable for farmers um that makes food 
reasonably priced and accessible for people and at the same time can protect our environment. So I hope that my research will help contribute to that larger body of work that's kind of moving in that direction. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. I think that's all the time we have for mm-hmm. today's episode. But thank you so much. That was very different. I've never learned anything like that before. So thank Thanks you so much, so for, much for coming on the show. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.